This is the Gospel of Luke that we're looking at snapshots. We're keeping up with a theme that we've had, and the theme is one of Luke's teaching that God's reversing this world. He's taking a world that's on one course, and he's doing a U-turn in so many different ways. And so last two weeks, we looked at uh, how we could read the Gospel of Luke and witness God's great concern for outsiders. Last two weeks, it was outsiders that were women. This week, it will be something a little bit different. But it's still God's concern for, in a sense, outsiders, but it's God's reversing this world order, doing a U-turn. Now, how many of you have ever watched Wheel of Fortune? Okay, it's good to know. Those of you who have not watched Wheel of Fortune, have you ever played Hangman? Same thing, just without Vanna White. I thought about getting Miss Carolyn up here to be Vanna White for us and turn some of these blocks. But Hank's not here, and so I decided I'd give her some peace, let her sit down. Now, I'm going to be teaching this morning on a section or something within Luke where God teaches that he's going to reverse the order of this world. It's got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight letters. All right? Y'all ready? Someone shout out a letter. Oh, I heard T. Okay, not really, but I'd already put T down there. So so I'm going with it, okay? I heard a T in my head. And uh, uh, those of you who might have said, start with a T, no T. Oh, R. Very good. I, I guess people might say R. Is there an R? Yes, there's an R. Okay, next. Oh, C. <laughs> bah, there's not a C in there. All right, but I may have heard someone say L. <laughs> yes, there is an L. I know some of you are saying, I got it. I got it. It's barbells. No. Luke never talks about barbells anywhere in his gospel. So if you were thinking barbells, or if you were thinking Corolla, which also would have fit, except it didn't have two L's, so would barbell. No, it's not Corolla either. The only car talked about in the New Testament is the Honda Accord, where it says all the apostles were in one accord. Okay. All right. Um which is a pretty roomy car, come to think of it. Um, okay, so A, I want to buy a vowel. Is there an A? Yes, there are two A's. Air holes. No, that would not fit. Is there a B? Yes. And someone has guessed it, parables. So we're going to look at parables this morning. All right, three things we'll do on the process. First point, what are they? Second point, give me some examples. Third point, points for home, or 
so what difference does it make in my life? All right, let's start with the first point, parables. What are they? Parables are stories to teach a point. I had a friend from the Middle East, a friend of our families, and he and his wife had come from Jerusalem, and they had come to the U.S. They were eating dinner with us. This was a number of years ago. And I asked him, I said, you know, I'm, I'm trying to figure out what is going on in the Middle East with the Palestinian-Israeli mess. You know, now Iran says they've got the know-how for a nuclear missile. Uh, you know, the, 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 the turmoil, the bombings, all the rest. You know, what's the solution? And our friend said to me, he said, well, you know the story about the scorpion and the tortoise, the turtle. I said, no. Oh, well, all right, well, Miss Carolyn, you know it, but I didn't know it. He says, the scorpion says to the turtle at the bed of a river or creek, he says, hey, can you swim me over to the other side? I'll climb on top of you. You swim me over. And the turtle says, "Uh, I'm not going to do that. I'm not an idiot. We'll get midway across the thing. You'll sting me and kill me. And the scorpion says, why would I do that? Then I would drown. I'm not going to sting you midway across. you got to get me across. And the turtle says, uh, well, I mean, when you think about it that way, it makes sense. All right, climb on. So the scorpion climbs on the back of the turtle. Turtle starts swimming him across the water. They get halfway across the water. Scorpion stings him. He dies. Scorpion goes into the water. He dies. Then our friend said to me, Welcome to the Middle East. Nobody's really looking for how they survived this thing. It's just a mess. Now, I'm not holding my friend up as an example of good politics and policy. I'm merely using it as a modern example, illustration of a parable a story that tells a point. Now, if we got out a dictionary and we looked up the word parable, the Oxford English Dictionary says a parable is an allegory or a proverb or a discourse or speech or talk and correctly says that that our word parable comes from a Greek word, parable, parabole. But it, you know, it's basically parable. The Greek word parabole means placing something side by side. So it's like a comparison. This is like that. It's an analogy. It can be a proverb or something like that. That's the Greek idea. And it was an idea in Greek thought at the time Luke wrote his gospel... But when Jesus says, I want to give you a parable or tell you a parable, Jesus is actually probably not thinking in the Greek language, but he's thinking in the old Hebrew or Aramaic language. And in Hebrew or Aramaic, his native language, the word for parable is mashal. Now, mashal, as a a verb, means to represent or to be like. But when it's in a a noun form, 
it's generally used means a proverb. It's in fact the word parable is used for the proverbs in the Old Testament. It's a wise saying. Now by the time Jesus comes around, so let's be thinking around 30 AD, by that time, the Old Testament usage of the words 400 years old plus, but at the time of Jesus, parables were used as teaching tools by the rabbis and the wise sages of the day. And we can go back and read a lot of their parables and we can learn certain things. There's a great book on this by Stephen Notley. And Stephen Notley lists out factors that kind of made things a parable at the time of Jesus. And these, I don't list all of the factors, but I pulled out a couple of them that are relevant as we look at New Testament parables of Jesus in Luke. One of the factors is it's a statement that sets out, this is a parable. So generally, parables weren't just something that snuck up and bit you. Parables, it's not like uh, someone's just telling a story. They generally warn you, this is a parable. So you know, this is a made-up story. All right? Now, after that, another factor is, it's a narrative or a story that's told to convey a message. There's a point behind it. And so when you read the parables, you need to not just be reading them for the interesting story, but you need to try and understand the point or points of the story. Now, a third factor to parables at the time of Jesus is that there were generally few, if any, identifying details about where or when the story took place. This is not like... um, one of Shakespeare's plays where Act 1 sets up the, the, the time and the place and the characters and the location. Or for that matter, a TV show where they do the same thing. You have the introductory segment where they set out uh, uh, the, the person, place, and thing, and time, and all of that. You don't really have that, generally, in parables. Generally, a parable also describes reality. So you've got a description of of reality even though you're lacking certain details. That's going to become very important with one of the parables that we'll be looking at this morning. So you've got these parables by Jesus which have their own kind of rules. But in addition to that, you've got parables that the Greeks had been telling for hundreds of years. Aesop's fables 400 years before Jesus. And you've got the parables even before that of the Proverbs of the Old Testament. And then we're faced with the question of how do we understand those parables? Now, I've got to time out for just a moment and tell you uh, a story that I was reminded of the other day. Um, I was visiting with some people who had come out and, and they were in the chapel uh, out on the library property. And, and the chapel has got at the ends of the wings of, of the arms, if you will, the gospel wings, they've got paintings of parables. And, and while I had laid out what I wanted the paintings to be in the ceiling of the chapel to the painter, I did not lay out the parables. I had told Charles Mickey, who was the director at the time of the library, you pick out the parables or you just deal with it with Richard, the painter, 
because I'm, I'm, I'm gone. I'm, I'm going to be in trial for the next couple months and I just don't have time to deal with it. And so Charles told the painter, Richard, here's a set of ten parables. Why don't you paint these? But if you've got another parable you'd rather paint, you can paint that. So Richard got out there and he painted all of these parables. And they're beautiful paintings. I mean, it's not just, oh, gee, let me get a Sharpie and draw something on the wall. This is like, take the scissor lift up and get all the different colors and all the different blends on the palette and sketch it and then draw it and then paint it. I mean, very elaborate work, right? So Charles goes out there when it's done and he says, oh, that's great, that's great, that's great, that's great. And he gets to the very end and he says, I don't know what parable that is. By looking, can you remind me? And Richard said, oh, that's a great one. That's the parable of the woman with the cracked jar. And Charles said, what? Yeah, remember she goes to the well to get water, but she has a cracked jar. And so when she walks home with the cracked jar, all the water leaks out. And so she's got to go back and get it again because she had a cracked jar. Charles says, Richard, that's not in the Bible. Richard says, oh yeah, I'm pretty sure it is. He says, no, that's one of Aesop's fables. That's not in the Bible. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm pretty sure it's in the Bible. Richard, it's not in the Bible. Oh. So uh, he had to repaint, repaint, and then no more. Um, he had to repaint that one. But anyway, so you've got parables in the Bible, and the question becomes, how do we understand them? Now, there was a school in Alexandria, Egypt in the 200s, and a fellow named Origen was one of the chief teachers in that school. And that school is famous in church history for reading all of the Bible in an allegorical way, where the whole Bible is read and understood to be an allegory. And so Origen taught that the parables needed to be read as allegories. Let me give you an example of the allegorical approach. The parable of the Good Samaritan, Luke 10, 30 through 35. We're going to look at it again in a little bit, but let's read it real quick to make sure you have some of the key parts. It starts here. In the parable starts in verse 30, Jesus says, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him, beat him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him, he bound up his wounds, he poured oil on wine and wine on him. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, that's two days of wages, and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I'll repay you when I come back. That's the parable. Now, Origen teaches this parable 
And he says it's an allegory. He says that the man who's going down from Jerusalem to Jericho represents Adam. As in Adam and Eve. He says that Jerusalem, where the guy is leaving from, is paradise, where, or Eden, whereas Jericho is the world after the fall. He says, now the priest comes by, and the priest represents the law. And then a Levite comes by, and he represents the prophets. And then a Samaritan comes by, and he represents, anybody want to guess? Christ. And so Christ binds his wounds up. Christ has compassion on him. Now his wounds, that's the disobedience of humanity. That's sin. And then when he takes the man and he puts him on his animal to haul him to the inn, the animal is the body of Christ. The two denarii he gives the innkeeper represents the father and son. Now, you might be saying, as good Trinity-believing people, where's the Holy Spirit? Origen wasn't really a big Trinity kind of guy. Um, I mean, he recognized the Holy Spirit as divine, I think, but even he didn't even put the Son on the same level. Like, you got God, the Father, and then the Son's a little bit less, and then the Holy Spirit's even less than that. So he didn't think in our terms. So the two denarii are the Father and the Son. Now, the innkeeper, that's the church. And that's what he thought was the correct way to understand that parable. Now, that type of allegorical reading started with the Alexandrian school in about 200 AD, 220, and carried forward in a lot of places throughout the Middle Ages. But by the time you get to John Calvin, John Calvin on the allegorical approach said the following, quote, I acknowledge I have no liking for any of these interpretations. We ought to have a deeper reverence for Scripture than to reckon ourselves at liberty to disguise its natural meaning. He continued. Whoops. And indeed, anyone may see that the curiosity of certain men has led them to contrive these speculations contrary to the intention of Christ. Um, Now, I'm not as anti, perhaps, as John Calvin, but I do agree with him by and large. I think the key to understanding the parables is to put them into context. Specifically, two kinds of context. You want the context of the day. You want to understand how the people of the day would have heard the parable and thought about the parable. But you also want to consider it in the context of the gospel itself that's writing. So like when we look at these in Luke, within the book of Luke, what the context would be. Let me give you another example. The context of the day. Let's consider the parable of the four soils, which is found in Luke 8, 4 through 15. Luke 8, 4 through 15. It reads as follows. 
And when a great crowd was gathering and people from town after town came to Jesus, Jesus said in a parable, a sower went out to sow his seed. And as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot. Now the way they would sow back in that day, they'd have a sack that they wore that had the seed in the sack. They would walk along the field grabbing a handful of seed and spreading it like this. Another handful of seed, spreading it like this. And as he's doing it, I'm sure near the border, it's very easy for, his, for Jesus' listeners to hear this and understand that some of it's not going to fall in the field that's been prepared, but some of it's going to fall on the path next to the field. And that which fell on the path was trampled underfoot. And the birds of the air came and ate it. Now some fell on the rock. Because you'll have rocks there. And as it grew up, it withered away because it didn't have any moisture. The rock doesn't retain water. Some fell among thorns. And the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. As Jesus said this, he called out, If you can hear me, you ought to be listening. Now, when the disciples asked him what the parable meant, Jesus said, it's been given to you to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. For others, they're in parables. Seeing, they may not see. Hearing, they may not understand. You need to get God's help on this stuff. The parable is this. The seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard the word of God. Now, the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. He's the bird. And the ones on the rock, the seeds that fell on the rock, are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But because they have no root, they believe for a while. And then in a time of testing, they come up short. And as for what fell among the thorns, these are the ones who hear the word, but as they go on their way, they get choked by the cares, by the riches, and by the pleasures of life. And their fruit does not mature. As for the good soil, that that falls in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, Hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. Now that honest and good heart is important. So I've not just highlighted it, but drawn a circle around it. This is the parable of the four soils. Now that's not an unusual parable for Jesus' day. We've got in the Mishnah which is Jewish writings of rabbis that were even contemporaneous with Jesus, we've got in the Mishnah today stories that show rabbis would frequently 
talk about four different types of people and how they would respond to the word of God. And so Jesus says, you got four types of disciples responding to the Lord of God. Those that are quick to hear, but don't trust. These are the ones who are like the, the, the path. And Satan comes and snatches it up. Those who are quick to hear, but eventually leave. These are the ones who are the stony area where it doesn't have enough moisture and it'll sprout up. But, but when the heat comes, withers away. Those who are quick to hear but are choked out by the world. Those are the ones among the thorns. Those that are quick to hear that hold it in a good heart and bear fruit. Now the rabbis would say there are four types of disciples. Those that are quick to hear and quick to forget the word of God. Those that are slow to hear the word of God and slow to forget. Those that are quick to hear and slow to lose because they spend their time studying the Bible. And those who are slow to hear and quick to lose. Now the rabbis in their parable or their explanation of types of disciples who study the word, the rabbis say that, whoops, uh, let's see, how did I lose that? Ah, here it is. You need to know, by the way, this side point I left out. The expression of a good heart, what I circled in red in the Bible, cardia calais, is the equivalent of a Hebrew idiom of tov lev. Tov means good, lev means heart. That signifies people who are generous and charitable. See, it signifies, Jesus talks about that fourth category as people who act upon the word. Who don't just hear the word, but with a good and generous heart, act on it. They're people whose actions show. And those are the people who bear fruit. Now, if you put the four types of disciples back up there, Jesus is saying the commendable ones are these down here. The ones that are quick to hear. Hold it in their good heart and bear fruit. In other words, those who act upon the word of God. The rabbis emphasize studying the word of God. That's the top category for the rabbis. So for the rabbis, it's study the Bible. But Jesus, if we read it in the context of its day, is making an emphasis, not of don't study the word of God. Obviously, you need to study it to know what it says. But Jesus' emphasis is on how do you live it. You can study all day long. You remember uh, Tevia? If I were a rich man, fiddler on the roof. If I were a rich man. Great character. All right? He's got that if I were a rich man and in his song. You know, he, he talks about he'd have one long staircase just going up and one even longer coming down. He wasn't an architect. Doesn't work that way. Um, but, but anyway, uh, he says, and the sweetest thing of all would be that he would discuss the holy books, that he would have a seat by the eastern wall, that he would be, get to spend all of his time at, at synagogue 
with the holy men reading the books. That's the pinnacle of rabbinical holiness. That's not the pinnacle of Jesus' holiness. The pinnacle of Jesus... Look, I I hate to say this because we're in a Sunday school class where we study the scripture. But if you've got a choice between studying the scripture for an hour and showing someone the love of Jesus for an hour, you better go for the love of Jesus. Jesus emphasized loving action. The rabbis emphasized Torah study. And that's just an example of how the context of the day helps us understand the parable. But you also need to see the context within the book itself. And that's why when I talk about Luke's theme of God reversing the order of this world, we can read some of the parables and understand them in light of that theme. And see how Luke included things that Matthew and Mark didn't. And that's probably one of the reasons why it was to bear bear out his theme that he's writing, his meta-narrative, if you will. So, okay, that's point number one, the parables. Now, let's uh, consider a couple of Luke's unique parables. In other words, parables found only in Luke, nowhere else in the Bible. One we've already started talking about, and that's the parable of the Good Samaritan. Now I want to look at it again in context and try and understand it. I've got a picture up above behind me of the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, um, that becomes important. You can see that's not like just, and that's today. That's still not a favorite place to go hiking if you've got a bunch of um, brigands and, and people around. So within the framework of that, let's go to Luke 10. And look a little bit more at that story. And the story starts in context of what Luke's putting it in there. So the context of the story is not, I'm sorry, Origen, it's not here's Adam and the fall and and everything like that. The context of the story is right here. A lawyer. I already tell you you got a loser in this story. I'm just joking. Guy could have been a relative. Now, technically, he's probably not a great lawyer because Texas Tech Law School had not started yet. That's the kind of stuff you get by taking this in context. You know, he probably went, I don't know if the University of Texas was around then, maybe, but uh, Texas Tech, no. So a lawyer stands up. And puts Jesus to the test. Okay, Now this is interesting. Remember, theme of Luke. Jesus flips everything on its head. So this guy comes to test Jesus. And spoiler alert. Jesus instead tests this fellow. He says, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, well, lawyer... What does the law say? How do you read the law? And the lawyer says, well, the law says, and he quotes Deuteronomy, the law says, uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. It's Deuteronomy 6. 
And then after that, he quotes Leviticus 19, where it says, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, you nailed it. Do this, and you'll live. Now, this makes some people nervous, because some people read that and think, Jesus is teaching that if we do things right, we go to heaven. I thought all the works in the world couldn't save us and we wouldn't inherit eternal life off of works. Well, the principle is if you never sin, yeah, you'll be fine. But nobody does this correct. Nobody does this. Nobody. Nobody. No. Show me anyone other than Jesus who loves the Lord God with all of their heart, with all of their soul, with all of their strength, with all of their mind. Show me anybody who does that. There isn't anybody. I've known some pretty good people in this world. I'm married to one of the most wonderful, godly people in the world. But with all due respect to my wife, she ain't even coming close. She's a whole lot further along than I am, though. I mean, this is why when we find people in sin, we can all say, there but for the grace of God go I. None of us are high and mighty. None of us sit in judgment on someone else because none of us are doing it. Love your neighbor as yourself. I ain't there on that one either. And I'm not sure I've met anybody who is if we see this. But now look, this lawyer dude, he wants to justify himself. He wants to say, I'm doing it. I'm the guy. So he says, all right, let's just get some real legal boundaries here. You tell me, who's my neighbor? Now, that's the context where Jesus tells the parable. So the meaning of the parable's got to be plugged in to the context. The context is some fellow who thinks he's doing it all and wants to justify himself. He just wants to know, is the neighbor that I have to love like myself someone who's like on my block? Or is it the guy immediately next door? You know, maybe, maybe, maybe it's zip code. But that should be stretching it. Who's my neighbor? And to answer that question, Jesus tells the parable. He says, a man's going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, going down because Jerusalem is about 2,500 feet above sea level. Jericho's in the Rift Valley. It's 800 feet below sea level. So he's literally going down. He's going down from the mountain down into the valley. And as he goes down, he falls among robbers. Now this is a dangerous road at the time. Travel in general was dangerous back then. I mean, think about it. When you're traveling, I can remember when I was young and I took my first trip without mom and dad on my own. I went with a bunch of other people, but not mom and dad. And and do you know what they sent me with? They sent me with 
traveler's checks. Now, most of you are saying, I vaguely remember those. Some of you are young enough to say, got no clue what this old man's talking about. Traveler's checks. You would go to the bank or to a service company and they would issue checks on the bank so that it would look like it's valid cash, but it would have your name on it and you had to, you could be the only one to redeem them. Because they didn't want me traveling with cash, what if someone rips me off? Well, they didn't have traveler's checks back then. Now I don't leave home without Becky. (laughs) Now we have, you know, American Express cards, Visa, MasterCard, Discover, whatever there is out there. And so you can travel with those. And it's a little bit safe. Back then they didn't have those either. You want, you want money to buy for food? You take cashola, do re me. It was a profitable existence to be a thief on the road. And it's not like, holy smoke, there are some thieves. Let me get my cell. I'm going to call 911. We're going to get Constable Mark Herman over here and get this fixed. No. I mean, it was dangerous to travel. So, these people who are hearing this story know that. It's natural to them. So, he falls among robbers. They strip him. They beat him. And they depart, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road. That means he's likely leaving Jerusalem, headed down to Jericho. A lot of people read this parable and say, well, you know, the priest didn't want to get his hands dirty because he's going to go serve in the temple. I think I even taught that times in my life before I'd read it carefully enough to realize he's already done his service in the temple. He's headed home. So it's not that. He's got no excuses here. A priest was going down the road. And when the priest saw him, he passed on the other side. You remember when uh, Shakespeare wrote uh, uh, Julius Caesar? I came, I saw, I conquered. Winnie, witty, wicky. Yeah, this guy came, he saw, and he walked on by. That's the cadence. I came, I saw, I walked on by. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place, saw... And walked on by. He came, he saw, he walked on by. But a Samaritan, now at this moment, as Jesus is telling the story, back in that day, the Samaritans were like the worst of the worst of the worst of the worst of the worst. You just say the word Samaritan and you're supposed to spit. Just because the word came out of your mouth. Samaritan, nasty, no good people. Wretched. Think every pejorative against a race you can. And that's the way the high and mighty Jews viewed the Samaritans. When Samaritan journeyed, he came, he saw, and he had compassion. He didn't walk on by. He went to him and he bound up his wounds. He poured on him oil and wine. 
He set him on his own animal. He brought him to an inn and he took care of him. This is a merchant. This is someone who's got goods with him. He's got money with him. He's on his own. He's probably pretty good with his hands and weapons. Or he wouldn't be in that situation out there on his own. But he has compassion. He takes care of him. And the next day he takes out two denarii. That's what most people had to work two days to make. He gives it to the innkeeper. Says, take care of him. Whatever more you spend, I'll repay when I come back. Jesus says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the lawyer said, uh, the one that showed him mercy. Jesus said, ding, 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 ding. You got it right. That's the way you need to be. Now, this is pretty cool. The lawyer stands up to put Jesus to the test. And the lawyer gets tested and pointed out his life's a failure and gets told to do better. That's the idea of the parable. That's this God reversing the world. That he'd do it with a Samaritan. It's just, it's just quintessential Luke where the outsider it becomes the insider. All right, we got time for another one. Uh, I was going to end a little early. Uh, let's just throw in another one. Luke 12, 13 through 31. This is a good one. Although, I'm tempted to skip it and go to the next one. because, Well, let's just do this one quick. Someone in the crowd says to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. My brother got all the inheritance. He, he should have to give me some of it. Now, inheritance typically went to the oldest. But he wants Jesus to intervene. And a reader of Luke might be thinking, hey, Jesus is turning the world upside down. Jesus might just say, I'll do that. Hey, divide the inheritance with your brother or you'll go to hell forever. <laughs> but Jesus says, hey, buddy, like, am I supposed to be the judge and the arbiter over your legal mess? Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. One's life doesn't consist in the abundance of possessions. And he tells him a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And the man thought to himself, what shall I do? I got more crops than I can store. Now, you got some options here. Option number one, praise the Lord and give some away. Because there are a lot of hungry people. Option number two, go ahead and let the crops flood the market. And when there are two many goods in the market. Do you know what it does? It's the opposite of inflation. It's deflation. It would drop the price. You know, the price of oil is up right now because 
the supply outstrips, I mean, the demand outstrips the supply. But you get a glut of oil. It's why President Biden goes over to Saudi Arabia to try to get them to increase their production. It's why a lot of people are screaming, let drilling happen in the U.S., please. Because if you'll increase production and have more product, price will go down. So this fellow, I mean, that's economics didn't just start in the year 2020 or 2022. So the man instead says, I know what I'm going to do. I'm just going to tear down my barns and build bigger ones. Then I'm going to store all my grain and my goods. So I'll get the best price when it gets really expensive. And I'll say to my soul, soul, you have lots of goods laid up for many years. Relax. Take it easy. Eat, drink, be merry. And God said, you fool, this night your soul's required of you and the things you've prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Now that's a stinging story. That's a story of reversal. God reverses and takes the guy who thinks he's got it all. And this is a fellow who never recognized that everything he had was God's. He failed to see that his life itself was on loan from God. If we don't understand that everything we've got looking at two of my friends here on the front row mother and daughter even our children are entrusted to us for a purpose and what we all need to do with everything we've got whether it's a child or whether it's a dollar or whether it's a job or whether it's a career opportunity, or whether it's an educational opportunity, or whether it's whatever we've got, we need to see it as God's, who has entrusted it to us to put to good use. And when we do so, then we will be blessed by God, Not, and, and, but we don't do it so we get the blessing. We do it out of true recognition of what it is. And, and that is not the way the world thinks. That is a reversal of the world. That is changing the world's priorities. All right, I got to give you one more real quick. And this is Luke 16, 19 through 21. And this is the one where it was so important that I tell you that, that the, the stories that are parables are based upon facts and not facts but but real world stuff you know this parables jesus wasn't telling parables like the lord of the rings you know or like uh, the chronicles of narnia where it's an allegorical make-believe he's telling it in in real life situations and that becomes important because a lot of people want to know what happens when you die look at luke 16 starting with verse 19 there was a rich man. By the way, notice this uh, rich man. 
doesn't get a name. There was a rich man who's clothed in purple. Purple, the most expensive clothing you could have. They took wool and they would put wool with clays to bleach the wool white. And that was expensive if you wore white garments. But to get a Tyrian dyed, Tyrian dye was what made it purple. To get a Tyrian dyed piece of clothing was exorbitant. I mean, it was a lot more expensive than even white wool. A man who was clothed in purple and fine linen. He feasted sumptuously every day. Most people would have a feast once a quarter. Rich people maybe once a month. This guy's feasting every day. At his gate. He lives in such a nice place, he's got a gate. At his gate, laying down a poor man named Lazarus. Rich guy, what's he clothed in? Purple and fine linen. What's this poor guy clothed in? Sores. Rich guy, house with a gate. Where's the poor guy? Laying down at the gate. He desired to be fed just with what was being thrown away after the meal. The scraps. He's got dogs that are coming and licking his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. Rich man died and he was buried. Poor guy doesn't even get a burial. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and he saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. Now the idea that is here from Jesus and the context, the way it would be understood by the people is, when you die, you go to a waiting place before judgment. It's called Hades. And Hades is divided up between that which is paradise. Jesus said to the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise. Paradise, Hades, that's the good part. Or the bad part where this fella is. Hades has divisions. He calls out and he says, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. First of all, it's rather ironic that this fellow who had everything in life with no mercy for that kid or that man out on the poor guy getting his dogs that are licking his sores is crying out, hey, have mercy on me. He knows, he knows what mercy is when he needs it. Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue. I anguish in this flame. Like Lazarus is an errand boy. Hey, Father Abraham, I'm sure you remember me. I was that rich dude. I got a gate. I wore purple, remember? Sumptuous feasting every day. Get uh, that Lazarus boy and make him go over there and get some water and come touch my tongue. Man, it's hot. Abraham said, Child, remember in your lifetime you received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he's comforted here. 
and you're in anguish. Besides this, between you and us is a great chasm that's been fixed so that those, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able. And you can't come here either. This is the way it is. So the rich man says, then I beg you, send him to my father's house. I've got five brothers. He can warn them, lest they come to this place of torment. Abraham said, oh, they got Moses and the prophets. They got all the warning they need. He said, no, 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 no. But if someone comes to him from the dead, they'll repent. He said, buddy, if they're not hearing Moses and the prophets, they're not going to be convinced should someone rise from the dead. I mean, this is God's reversing the order of this world and the reversal is permanent. So we've got to finish this. That's point two. Here's the so what. What does this make a difference in my life? How does it make a difference in yours? What are the points for home? First of all, I want to look for the vision of Jesus. I want to see this world the way he sees it. I want to be, I don't, I don't want to be someone who, who sees the world in the old order. I want to see it in the new order. I want to see my possessions as belonging to God and trying to figure out what God wants me to do with them. I want to see my time belonging to God and figure out what God wants me to do with it. I want to see my parenting opportunities belonging to God and see what God wants me to do with them. I want to see my husband opportunities belonging to God, see what God wants me to do with them. I want to see my teaching opportunities belonging to God and see what God wants me to do with them. I want the vision of Jesus in my life. Point for home too. I want to serve love in action. Heaven forbid I get so nerdy, geeked out that I spend all my time in my library reading scripture and translating the Greek and Hebrew until I get goosebumps on my arm. If it doesn't result in me changing the way I live. I want to make this real. I want, I don't want this to be an academic exercise. I don't want this to be a Sunday morning exercise. I want the vibrant, real presence of God transforming me little by little every day into a greater likeness of the image of his son. And I hope you do as well. Let me bless you in the name of Jesus and then I've got to run. Um, Father, in the name of Jesus, we do want to see you more clearly and we want to see this world and see ourselves with your vision. Would you help us to do so? Stir up in us, Father, love in action. And, and Father, make this the most real thing there could ever be in our minds. Don't let us buy into the lie that this is a Sunday morning only routine. This is our prayer in the name of the Lord Jesus. And Father, also bless the message I get an opportunity to preach coming up. Please minister. Get everybody who needs to be in there in there and minister through your word in the coming hour. Through Jesus we pray. Amen.